0: Welcome to Up Next. I'm Gabrielle Boucher, millennial author and entrepreneur. Each week, I bring to you next generation leaders and millennial game changers to inspire you to change your world. Let's see what's next. Hey, everyone. It's Gabrielle. And today I am talking to a great friend of mine, Kirsten Haglin, who is a political commentator. She's a frequent contributor at multiple news associations like Fox News, and she is Miss America 2008. So, Kirsten, thanks so much for coming with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I love every conversation that you and I have. I mean, we first met on a trip to Israel about a year and a half ago, and there was just kind of this instant bond of of passion for everything political and everything girly all at the same time. <laughs> and yeah. and from there we've really been able to uh, expand our our friendship and it's been so wonderful being able to get to know you and your great husband Ryan and having you guys come visit me and my husband Brian in our little little apartment in Washington DC. But One role that I've always really appreciated about you is how you are able to bring such voice, such a voice of of light and transformation to our generation. And uh, I'd love to just chat with you today about where you see our generation really needing direction. When you're out there and you're speaking either with your nonprofit, the Kirsten Haglund Foundation, or you're contributing on Fox You're giving a voice to millennials and a voice to women. What has been the biggest challenge that you faced in overcoming some of the stereotypes that have held women and millennials in particular back?
1: Uh, um, you know, I think, and I know you talk about this in your book and throughout your work too, um, that there is this stereotype that millennials don't care, that they're apathetic, um, that they don't want to get involved in things, um, and they're very entitled. But I see millennials all over the country at colleges. Um, through community organizations, and you know, here in New York City, that really do care very much and really do want to get involved. It's just a matter of figuring out how. Um, and I, one thing that I experience a lot on college campuses is um, this fear of failure, intense fear of failure that our generation struggles with. Um, and I think that's uh, a function of the time of that we came into age uh, during the economic recession. Um, you know, we, we're all, uh, gosh, around, you know, the time when you're coming into adolescence when nine 11 happened, which has a huge impact on how you, how you grow and develop and how the mind develops. Um, so all these things have kind of affected, um, our generation and, and really led to, I think this fear of failure. And once you get out into the real world, um, needing approval from other people, can I do this? Can I do this? How can I do that? How can I do this? And, um, instead of kind of going with their gut or going with their innate skills and abilities or 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 kind of thinking outside of the box, going, um, or challenging the status quo, there's this fear and they constantly need this approval from the system, from people, from others, from, you know, the internet, (laughs) from social media, um, this constant need for approval. And that is, you know, something that I have struggled with my, in my own life, especially in the things that I've been involved with from ballet to pageants, to now working in television, because even though it's about information, it's also a medium where people are judging you constantly. Um, and it's one thing that Uh, I've really worked hard to overcome and really had to realize the hard way that you're never gonna have everyone's approval and you just have to go with what you feel you have to go with your gut you have to put in the research and the time and then um, be confident and be yourself and kind of doing that on a daily basis especially in a very public sphere like television has really helped me to overcome that kind of what I consider to be a real barrier for young people Um, and so far as women are concerned I I mean, we could talk all day long about the way women are portrayed and perceived in the media. Um, a lot of people have varying opinions about what is the most important thing to tackle, whether it's work-life balance, whether it's children work balance, whether it's the sexualization of women in the media. You know, there's a lot of different problems that women have, um, wage gap, etc. But for me, one of the things that I see as— and obviously I don't have children yet, so I can't speak to the kids and work life balance relationship and situation, which is extremely important. But one thing that I just really, really struggle with is just this fact that, you know, women are either pretty or they're smart and they can't be both. Um, and coming from, you know, the Miss America organization, and obviously that was a tremendous experience for me. It gave me, so much in so far as life experience. And I won $65,000 in scholarships for my education. So I graduated debt free. And, you know, it, it was so wonderful in so many ways, but it is true that that comes with baggage in the sense that, oh, you're a pretty ditzy blonde who doesn't know about anything except for pageants and, you know, girl things and fashion and, you know, you must not be interested about anything else and you must not have the qualifications to talk about anything else. But that's obviously not true after my years. Well, first of all, during my years, Miss America, I lobbied Congress. I worked on the Hill with legislators involving, um, legislation related to eating disorders, which is my personal platform, um, was a speaker for several national organizations, not only related to government and civics, but also related to women's issues and body image and eating disorders. Uh, Following my years, Miss America continued to travel around the country and speak on this. I went back and got my degree in political science. Um, I've been working as a commentator since 2009. And then for um, a year was an anchor for an all digital media company. So I've been doing this for now eight, nine years. And There's no reason why I don't also have the qualifications, despite also, you know, being someone who came from a pageant background. And, you know, I don't want to sit here and say I'm pretty, but it is someone who has been in a business where it's your job to look pretty every day. Uh, You can be both. And um, I just it really frustrates me when sometimes on a daily basis, men older, usually they're from another generation, but not always. They can be other women um, really judge you because you're a pretty young woman and think you don't have anything else to offer, but you do. And I, you know, kind of one of the ways that I try to try to continue to to conquer that um, is at first I thought I really had to overcompensate and be really, really serious and really only ever talk about very serious things, very serious political issues, very serious theological issues in order to be considered serious. But what I realized in that process was I wasn't being authentic to myself. I am a person with a wide range of interests and activities and things that I love to talk about, not only politics and theology, but yes, fashion. And yes, what, um, you know, what is trending on Twitter and, you know, things that might seem to other people to be to be shallow. But, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a human being. I have a wide variety of interests. So I don't think that it's authentic and real, um, to go into situations and not pretend like you're someone else. So I try to be the most authentic, authentic that I can possibly be. And, Not only in news, but also then when I go and I speak to my young women all over this country, um, because I think they need to see that, too, that in order to be a professional, successful woman or a great mom, you know, whatever it is that they want to be, they don't have to sacrifice a certain part of themselves in order to be successful. Um, That the only way that you're going to be successful and whether you count that to be monetarily, whether it's a certain status, whether it's getting a certain job, you know, whatever your definition of success, the only way that you're really going to be able to reach that is if you're true and authentic to yourself. So that's um, from a woman's perspective, what I've had to deal with a challenge and how I think we all can continue to work to overcome it
0: as a generation, and you hit it right on the head with your response, is we're craving authenticity in a world where everything seems so plastic and fake. And we're overwhelmed with information, uh, but desperate for truth. So when you're out there, either speaking you know, uh, live to audiences at universities or you know working with on Fox News, or you're using your social media platform, there is that holistic sense of who you are. And I think as a generation, we're really craving that. John Seidel, a mutual friend of ours and previous guest of the show, even mentioned uh, to me before we were recording, you know, remember when that young woman from The Bachelor recently committed suicide and he on I Am Second put out a blog post basically saying The most terrifying thing about this, not only did we lose a young woman, but people said her Instagram and her Facebook feed, everything was so positive. No one would have known anything. And it's heartbreaking to think that as a society, that's how we're measuring Happiness and fulfillment is if they're posting happy-go-lucky things online, there must not be something deeper there. And uh, you're really turning that on on its head and having open, authentic conversations, struggles, and saying, "Hey, this is me. This is real life. This is what it's like to be, you know, a young millennial woman." And I'm curious, Kirsten, as your experience speaking and working with this generation of millennial women. How do you see this next generation of millennial feminism, if you could even call it that? And what does that look like in the future?
1: Yeah, you know, it's really feminism is such a loaded term. Um, And the feminism or uh, girl power of our generation looks a lot different, obviously, than did first wave feminism. So we're kind of in second wave. And, you know, one positive thing that I, I really like is I think that Uh, a lot of girls are starting to, you know, embrace this idea that they can really do anything that they want. um, And they feel that the opportunities are there, uh, which I think is amazing. Um, But one downside of it is that so many young women then feel the pressure, increased pressure to that they must as a duty, as a woman to embrace every single role and Try to shoot all the way to the top and climb straight up the corporate ladder and um, achieve dizzying levels of success and be a mother and write a best selling book and be on several different boards and, 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 and. Yeah. and. Um, which for some people that's great and that's what they need to do. That's what, you know, what makes them passionate and that's what lights their fire. But not everyone is cut out to do that. Not everyone wants to, but when these young women feel that pressure then to do that, um, is creates a lot of anxiety, a lot of self doubt, a lot of insecurity, um, and a lot of identity crisis. And so that's what I think is a kind of a downside of where feminism is right now for young women. But I think as millennials move more into, you know, some of the oldest millennials are in their early thirties right now. And so if you think, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what is the conversation going to be? I mean, I think we still have to wait to see what exactly the feminism of our generation is going to look like. And I foresee it being much more balanced, that women are really going to, you know, kind of like the whole lean in movement, which I I, I think Cheryl Sandberg is great. And I think she's done a lot of good. Um, but also, you know, saying, well, yeah, there's times to lean in. But, you know, then there are really other valid life options, you know, working part time, having more of a flexible schedule, being more entrepreneurial, you know, committing to being a mom full time, um, you know, just you know, a woman's choice should be valid, whatever it may be, and that we should honor those things. And then also work in concert with the incredible men who support women in their choices. Um, because that's not ever really talked about very much, but, Women aren't aren't going to be able to do anything and be happy in any respect if they don't have men who support them as well. Uh, You know, whether it's brothers, fathers, um, boyfriends, husbands, et cetera. You know, women, I believe, were created to be in relationships. And I I think that women do so well in that area. And so to really see women be supported in whatever it is that they choose to do or however it is that they want to be fulfilled, you need to also address the, the relationships that they're in. And that includes men. So I think you're going to see in 10 to 15 years a much more balanced conversation about women and wellness and, um, what it means to take care of themselves and to, um, make choices that are really authentic to them and support other women who are making choices that are different than their choices. Um, I I think that that's going to be a big change that you see. And I'm really looking forward to that change because there's a lot of judgment around, um, among women right now. And I think that, you know, women, we can be our harshest critics, but I think there needs to be a lot more love and support of other women, um, rather than judgment, because that's, what so we've been fighting <laughs> fighting for decades
0: yeah and we're we're already seeing a transition now where gender roles are becoming more equal And we're seeing it with millennial moms who've responded saying, Mm -hmm. yeah, I share more responsibilities with my husband, whether that's taking care of the kids, he stays home one day a week or, you know, some combination. To your point, we're really personalizing our experience, but I've always found it somewhat ironic and that the group that's arguing for the right for a woman to choose what to do with her body also oppose the right of the woman to choose to stay at home or to Mm -hmm. have two jobs or to, you know, support her husband or, you know, what have you, there's, Mm -hmm. there's that lack of mutual respect of expecting that woman to, to choose the best thing for you. Now you Mm -hmm. were recently on after the view, which is the live stream after the traditional view coming on. And before we jumped on this podcast, we were chatting a little bit about your experience, but I thought you said something really profound and kind of quirky. Is that you said that you're you're like a ninja for the conservative movement, <laughs> and and I think that that's so true because as someone who's a conservative and who's a Christian, going into what could be some some pretty crazy waters, you're having to to really figure out you know, how to do it in a graceful way. So what are some tips that you would share with our listeners about how do you walk into a situation where people are out against you and don't believe anything that you believe? And (laughs) how are you winsome to win them over? Yeah. Um,
1: I think the first step before even going into a situation like that, it's so important to diversify your friend group. And I don't mean like you have to be best friends with people who are opposite in everything of you, because that's not realistic. You're not, you can't share that level of intimacy with someone who believes something just radically different than what you do. But it's one of the things I love about living in New York city and the wide variety of things that I've been involved with in my life. I was in ballet and then musical theater. And, and so that comes with a very, you know, it's a, usually a very liberal crowd, you know, I mean, it's all artists and people that think a certain way. And then, you know, was involved with pageants, which is a real mix of people that are, you know, very liberal. And, and then some, you know, people from the middle of the country who grew up doing pageants, you know, tend to come from very conservative backgrounds. Um, and now being in television, I mean, you run across all different kinds of people. And I just, so I never am just in a conservative bubble or a Christian bubble. And I think that it's really good to make sure that you're not in an echo chamber because then you'll never learn how to defend your faith or you'll never learn how to hear the other side and to really listen with two open ears and think about their argument, think about your argument and then practice disagreeing, but still respecting the other person. And I think that is as such a lost art form (laughs) in this country, um, because you know, as, as people of faith, we're called to love everyone. And, you know, who's created in the image of God, um, you know, even if they don't necessarily share our faith and then as well in this country, like, yeah, there are Democrats and Republicans and you might think, you know, you've got all the right answers and they might think they have all the right answers, but we're still, you know, Americans or we are still citizens of this country and still when something like nine 11 happens or, um, you know, something we still come together. So there needs to need to be those bonds. You need to be able to have an open mind and an open heart. Um, but the second thing I think is to always put yourself in the other person's shoes. How are they viewing who we are as a people? Um, you know, so how can I answer those objections right up front so that we can actually talk of uh, uh, having a meaningful conversation? Um, another thing is to find common ground on things that aren't related to hot topics, things that aren't related to religion or related to politics, you know, find common ground there. Like, for example, when, you know, I was on the, at the table with the women and, you know, obviously someone like a joy or a Raven, I, we have different political views, but you know, it was great. We, you know, joy and I talked about the miss America program. She had been a judge a couple of years before, and I actually tend to agree with her on things like the swimsuit competition. I, and now mine is more from a, you know, modesty perspective. And yes, I did compete in it, but my views on it have really changed. And as I, you know, because of my work with eating disorders and body image and having recovered from an eating disorder myself. You know, I see the effect that it has on young women. So, you know, that's common ground that we have. Um, you know, same with the conversation that Raven and I had. I mean, again, it was about, it was related to pageants, but, you know, she just like, oh, the the little girl pageants. And I said the same thing. I'm like, yeah, I know. I, I don't think that girls, little girls should be in that judgmental of a situation, you know? So building common ground with people on things that you can agree with first and establishing that is really, really important because then you can go on to talk about, you know, things that are a little bit more challenging or that you might disagree with, you know, but at least you've opened up a, a friendship with them at first or a respect for someone first that is so, so key. Um, and I think in the, in the, uh, the last thing that I'll say is, um, persuasive speech. know my dad always used to say, you get more bees with honey. And that is so, so true. And obviously, you know, the, the four minute soundbite that you have on a television, um, segment is a very short time to try to be able to do that, but you can give your opinion or state your argument in a serious way that gives validity to what you're saying, but also have a smile on your face, have respect to that person when you're in the green room talking with them beforehand, um, choose your words carefully. Uh, there are ways, and, and that takes practice, you know, um, but doing so in a way that is kind and first of all, gracious and motivated from a place of love um, because you're not going to persuade anyone by, you know, speaking with a bullhorn in their face. You're just not. So if your goal is really to be persuasive um, and open up a conversation, then you have to come from the right place. And if you're not, if you're not actually trying to be persuasive and you're just trying to be right, then you need to check your motives and, <laughs> go somewhere else. Cause I think, um, you know, that you can get into a power struggle and power struggles aren't worth it and actually do more to hurt the cause of trying to share what you believe in politics or trying to share your faith. Um, you really have to make sure that pride's not in that equation. Otherwise it'd be better if we just kept our mouths shut.
0: No, I absolutely. I think you made such a great point. I mean, checking to see what's my motive here. And so oftentimes we do feel better when we just go out and say, well, I said it, that's that, and walked away. But that's not how Jesus teaches us to be winsome. Mm -hmm. It's not how... Uh, effective leaders inspire change, and it's not how we're going to get anybody to not only believe us, but anybody to like
1: us as well. <laughs> yeah, important. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so- not yeah, and not at um at for you know not um at the expense of the truth, but as a part of that, you know, speaking. That's why you know it says throughout Scripture, speak the truth in love. It's not just yelling at people.
0: Yeah. Who knew? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And so in that same vein, though, how do we win over a generation that is so often thought of as either lost, unmotivated and just doesn't seem to care? I mean, we've got an election coming up in 2016 and everyone's talking about how do we get this next generation to care, to show up, to vote in your eyes? What is it going to take to really turn this generation on and activate it to really do the right thing.
1: Mm. You know, so many political scientists and <laughs> opinion writers and everything are trying to figure this out. Um, I think that once politics in the news, I mean, because the news media is so much a part of what, what people hear about the political process. Um, once they start talking issues that young about issues that young people really care about is when you're going to see a change. And the only time when the conversation is going to change is when more millennials get into positions of leadership. So first I would encourage young people to get involved in politics, get involved in the media, get involved in things that shape the conversation, you know, um, And you can do that through nonprofits or NGOs and all these different kinds of social activism that young people like. But really, I mean, if you want to be a conversation shaper, you have to be in the place where the conversation starts. And so much of that is in the media and in politics. And it it can be local politics, wherever you are, Um, you know, get into get involved um, in something where you can start to shape the conversation. I think the more young people we see doing that, um, the more they're going to be examples and role models for their peers to also be involved in, in untraditional ways. You know, getting involved in politics isn't going to mean you have to wear a suit, all a suit and a flag pin all the time. It, it can mean, you know, really being an activist for your community. You know, it's all those things that young people love. Uh, so I think once you start to see millennials getting into more positions of leadership in, in that way, and that's why I would encourage more and more of them to actually do so, then you'll see more young people activated, uh, in that way. But the other thing, um, that I think it's going to take is, um, just a more global minded society in general. I mean, young people today have access through the internet, through technology, through social media, through travel themselves for study abroad programs and all this kind of stuff. They have access to the entire world. Um, And I think once we as a country can start thinking more on a global scale um, and young people can feel like their country has an impact on things and and cares about stuff that's going on in Africa and in the Middle East and is connected with the young generation there, you know, I think this is like a global millennial thing. I don't just think it's millennials in America. I think it's millennials in Korea. I think it's millennials in the Middle East. I think it's, um, you know, millennial entrepreneurs in Africa. You know, it's millennials in Europe. I mean, even though there are fewer and fewer of them because, you know, Europe has been not reproducing lately. So, um, you know, this is a a global thing. And I think is, I think that, um, technology, it seems like a lot of people are down on millennials about using technology to, to connect. But I think, um, it's really wonderful and that it inspires and encourages action all around the globe. Um, for millennials, I think that, that, that their identity is going to be more tied into who are we as a human people across the globe. And that's what, you know, I think also is better for the church, um, and millennials in the church because it's not just about joining a church in America and being a part of a little Christian American club. You know, the church is global and there are going to be fewer and fewer Christians in this country. And so we have to connect with our brothers and sisters that live all over the world. Um, And I actually think that's going to be beneficial for the church. I think it's going to be beneficial for millennials who want to make an impact. Um, And I think really kind of expanding their views from outside of just this country and what it can do um, is another way that you're really going to see millennials start to get more involved and feel like they can have more of a voice.
0: Absolutely. I mean, technology is such a great platform for us to be able to connect, unlike ever before. And Mm -hmm. for other generations who look at technology as a distraction or something negative, or something that takes us off course, realizing that we're digital natives and this is Mm -hmm. like a second language to most people in this generation. So I think you made an incredible point there that we really need to start redirecting the conversation on issues that millennials care about and can get involved in. There's Mm -hmm. nothing more frustrating than someone telling you about a situation and you feeling completely helpless to do anything. We're in an era where each of us can be citizen activists. Everybody with a smartphone mm-hmm. with a camera on it can become a journalist now. So how are we equipped and empowered and even inspired to go out and really be those voices of change? So really great point. So Kirsten, we're here at the end of our interview and i to ask all of my guests the same question. And it is if the 12-year-old version of you were to meet you right now and see what you're doing, what would she think about who you are and what you're doing?
1: I love that question. Um, You know, when I was 12 years old, that was when I started struggling with my eating disorder. That's when I threw threw away my lunch uh, for the first time and Descended kind of into what was a long battle with anorexia. So 12 was not a great time for me <laughs> as a person. Um, but I had a very clear vision of who I wanted to be. You know, I couldn't have, t- I mean, when I was 12 years old, I wanted to be a professional ballerina. So I think I would have been shocked that I wasn't <laughs> dancing for it with a ballet company. Um, but I had a very clear vision of the, the woman I wanted to be. Um, that I wanted to be strong, that I wanted to be independent. Um, and that I wanted to be doing something that was making an impact. And for me and my 12 year old brain, that was ballet in the arts. Um, so I think I would have been surprised that I was involved in politics and theology and speaking and having the interest that I am now. But I think it would have provided me a lot of like reassurance, (laughs) um, because like I said, 12 was such a hard time for me. And I think it would have been like, Oh, okay, God, you got me like, (laughs) you got this, you got me. Um, and I am going to marry the man of my dreams. (laughs) So it's going to be okay. And I, that's something that I share with my college women when I talk with them. I'm like, it's going to be okay. Like it's going to be okay. I feel like so many people just need to hear that. Um, and especially as Christians, as people of faith, you know, we know that God is sovereign and he's got it. And so, yeah, on a day to day basis, things might be hard and things might be tough and all that. But I mean, thank God. I mean, he brought me through incredible struggles in order to get where I am today. And, you know, he had that plan. And so I'm thankful for it. Um, and I don't think at 12, I ever could have thought that I'd be here doing what I'm doing. And I don't think I ever would have thought that I'd be Miss America. I mean, that was a total fluke. Um, but I'm glad, and I wish I could have just told myself like, it's gonna be okay. That's such, God's got you. It's <laughs> such great advice. I mean,
0: I I need to hear that, right? Like, Gabriel, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be okay. Because so oftentimes we we drum up the the worst that could happen, or we think, what if, all day long, and don't rest in the assurance that. Uh, that we're protected and that we are fine and that we, we will be taken care of. So Kirsten Haglund, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us just to share your story. And I just want to acknowledge you for the voice that you do bring to this generation for your willingness to step out and speak up for women, for health issues and for the truth in a way that is winsome and graceful and, uh, is really needed, particularly in this time. So thanks so much. And we look forward to having you on again.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.